Well, at the risk of losing a few of you, I don't know really um, what your sort of culture is, one of my favourite, all-time favourite films is Forrest Gump. From the first time I saw it in the cinema, I thought, that is a brilliant film. I really loved that film. There's something wonderfully compelling about the story of a boy who's got every disadvantage, really, at the start of life. He can barely even walk. He's not very, very bright. Everything is stacked against him. And the story just shows him really muddling through life and doing whatever sort of comes naturally to him. And, and you watch as the winds of fortune, as it were, take him higher and higher into success and celebrity and wealth. Uh, it's a wonderful and amusing story, really, isn't it? And slightly unrealistic, I suppose. It's easy, isn't it, to resent uh, a man who's born into fortune. You know, old money that he's just received for doing nothing. Wealth that isn't earned. But the man who we admire, don't we? The man who forges his way through life from the gutter or from the slum into his wealth. That sort of person becomes more of a kind of people's hero, doesn't he? Well, what I particularly like about the Forrest Gump story, though, is that here is a man who does not forge his way through life and create his fortune, does he? I don't know if you know the story. He doesn't have that entrepreneurial grit and determination that we see in people like Alan Sugar and such like. He doesn't trample on others. He isn't driven by this desperate, burning desire to be successful. Actually, here's a man to whom fortune just happens, doesn't it? It just happens to him. Like there's an unseen hand of blessing on his life. (laughs) It's a nobody-to-somebody story. A story where the most unlikely character becomes a hero and rises to the top. And we love that kind of story. We love the rags-to-riches story, don't we? It's the basis of most fairy tales. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 tells such a story. Those verses we just read, verses 1 to 10. It's the story, it tells a story of the rise of the most unlikely characters from rags-to-riches. It's a story of God's people. It's a story, actually, of the church, isn't it? And it's a story that does not just start, get this, it doesn't just start in the gutter or in the slum. Actually, this story, most unlikely of all, starts in the morgue. It starts in the mortuary. It's fascinating, isn't it? Have a look. So to help us to go through these verses this morning, we're going to use a very simple structure. First, in verses 1 to 3, you're going to see what you were. Paul's talking about what you were. And then in verses 4 to 7, well, what you are now as Christians. And then in the last verses, verses 8 to 10, he's going to talk about the how and the why that's happened. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. So let's start in verse 1. What you were. Read with me, please, from verse 1. As for you... As for you, I'll read it out, so you don't need to read with me in that sense. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Where does your story start? You were dead. You were dead. That's one of the ways the Bible describes the condition of all who are
are not God's people. Sobering, isn't it? It's a description, actually, of of all of us. Whatever the case might be now, you started your life dead. And that sounds like a funny thing to say, doesn't it? Obviously, it doesn't mean physically dead. From the first spark of life when you were conceived and when you grew in the womb, you were a living being. There was life there. There was life in your body. And now, if you are able to walk and talk and eat and think, if you're able to understand what I'm saying now, then in a sense, you are alive. But you might still be dead. You might still be dead. And that is what this verse is saying. This verse actually says that, have a look at it, you were dead. And this is the funniest thing, really. Look at the way it's worded. You were dead in the way you used to live. That's a strange sentence. You were dead in the way you lived. In a sense, then, you were the walking dead. You were the living dead. Alive in one sense, whilst dead in another sense at the same time. So what is this deadness? Well, verse 1 explains. Take a look at it. You were dead, says Paul, the writer. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live while you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You see, it seems, let me follow the reasoning with Paul here, it seems what he's saying is that aliveness and deadness has something to do with the kinds of things we respond to. We used to be very much alive, says Paul, you used to be very much alive to the ways of the world and to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, so much so that you used to follow them. And I think that's the key, if you'll follow with me. I know this is... It's early in the morning and we've got to concentrate. That's the key. When you are alive to something, you react to it. You respond to it. That's what being alive to something means. When you're dead, you don't. Dead things don't respond. I hope that's not news to anyone here. If you go to a funeral parlour and you shout out, hey, who wants an ice cream? Well, no one responds. They are dead to you do that in the playground of a primary school, it's a complete, they're certainly alive, aren't they? And in the same way, says Paul, you were dead to God. It's a, it's a spiritual deadness, a spiritual deadness. The point being made here is that you were born and the package you came with is utterly lifeless and unresponsive to God. Now, that sounds odd. And people don't like hearing that. But listen, one author writes this. People say that Western culture is becoming more spiritually hungry. Now, it may be true that people are becoming more self-reflective or becoming more religious, but it cannot mean that people are really moving towards God because they're spiritually dead. Corpses don't get hungry and they can't move true, isn't it? Naturally speaking, this is the truth you've got to get right at the start here. Naturally speaking, off your own bat, no one really wants anything to do with God. They might think they do, but actually they don't really want anything to do with the God of the Bible. That's what they don't want anything to do with. They might have some imaginary God up there that they quite like the idea of, but nobody really wants anything to do with the God of the Bible, not naturally. 
uh, at a church I once worked for, we used to have uh, what were called, maybe quite clumsily, seeker-friendly services. And a, and a colleague and I used to comment, half-jokingly, but half-seriously too, about what a waste of time that is, because the Bible plainly says, no one understands, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. So it's a service to appeal to, well, no one, naturally speaking. And the symptoms of this deadness are plain for all to see. You can see them in, like I said before, what you're actually alive to. Let's take a look. There are three things that we used to be alive to and used to follow before we followed Christ. Three tyrants, actually, over our life. Have a look at them with me. The first is in verse 2. Paul says, you used to follow the ways of this world. You used to follow the ways of this world. The first tyrant, then, is our culture. For us in the West, I think that's best summed up as being a culture of personal autonomy. What do I mean by that? Well, the air that our culture breathes is one of self-centred self-rule. That's what our culture teaches and breathes and wants. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? That's what our culture wants to say. Who are you to judge me? How dare you disapprove of my choices? The golden rule is, as long as it's not hurting anyone else, don't tell me what I can and can't do. Isn't that right? I will do what I want to do with my life and with my body and with my possessions, and I am accountable to no one but myself. And it has no recognition that God is the one who actually made and runs and owns the whole of creation. That's where it goes wrong. It's a culture that worships all of those old, age-old idols of power and status and wealth and leisure and sex and pleasure and education and career and family and children. And it's a culture that takes those things and exchanges God, exchanges the creator for those created things. Madness. Madness. To trade in the creator for things that are made. That's the first tyrant. The second tyrant in verse 2 is the ruler, he says, you follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Well, who is that? Well, in short, it's Satan. There's a satanic influence on the world, says Paul. Make no bones, make no mistake about it. He is ever active. Satan is ever active, and his power is always active as a tempter, as a liar, as an accuser in this world. In Jewish thought, the realm of Satan is the air. It's the air. It is the realm, the realm of the spirits that exist between heaven and earth. It is all pervasive. It is everywhere, this influence. It is his voice. Listen, don't... Don't be deceived by this. It is his voice that directs the godlessness of our culture. It is his voice that questions, it's that voice that questions the existence of God, that questions, well, the goodness of God. Look at all those rules. They don't sound good, do they? Whether God has, in fact, got the best interests of his creation at heart at all. And he's been up to those same tricks since the Garden of Eden, hasn't he? But the blame, now as then, cannot all be placed on him. Look at how verse 2 is worded. Verse 2 talks about 
his spirit being at work in those who are disobedient. There's actually a disobedience. It is disobedience to listen to that voice. There is a willful, isn't there, a willful accepting of his lies because we want to rule ourselves. We don't want there to be a God who might restrict us, who might stop our fun. We don't trust him. And then there's the third uh, tyrant. Have a look in verse 3. Paul talks about the cravings of our flesh. It's an evocative sentence, isn't it? The cravings of our flesh. Paul writes, verse 3, all of us lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we fight on three fronts. The world trying to sweep us along into its way of thinking, trying to force us into its God-rejecting mould. Then there's Satan with his lies and his accusations, tempting us to question his goodness, to suppress his truth. And then there is the flesh, says Paul. Now see, the previous two tyrants, the world, the devil, Satan, they attack from the outside, don't they? They're an influence from the outside. But the flesh, the flesh, well, you can't escape the flesh. The flesh is the traitor working on the inside. Our flesh, our flesh is talked about all over in the New Testament. It is translated quite often as something like the sinful nature. There's a, a nature to you that is sinful. The flesh is a term used to describe our kind of innate, that what we're born with, a, a pull, a pull towards sin. It's a, it's a magnetism towards those things. Like addicts, our, our flesh responds to the pull of sinful temptations and lusts. Who in this room hasn't felt that pull? It's part and parcel of who we are. Sometimes we hate ourselves for it, but we just it, those can't stop it, but want to, but enjoy it kind of battle within us. And verse 3 describes it, you see, doesn't it, as a craving. It's a craving by nature, just by merit of being a human being. We crave power and pleasure. We want to feel good, don't we? And we reach quite often for the... There's nothing wrong with feeling good, but we reach for the quickest fix, the quickest fix that we can find. Now, I've talked about those, those three things, the world, the flesh, the devil. I've talked about those as if we all battle with them and we, you know, we want to throw off the yoke of tyranny... But here's the sad thing, that's not even actually the case. In fact, by nature, by nature, outside of Christ, we enjoy our sin, actually. We get pleasure from it. Sure, it might cause us a few regrets from time to time as the, as the, you know, as, as the chickens come home to roost, as there are consequences. But on the whole, we don't really want to change. Not really. This is who human beings are. And Paul says, that is what you were. Everyone here. That is what you, at the very least, were. That's what you were as a human being. Outside of Christ, we reject God and we do not want him to rule over us. And the results of it are gravely serious. Look at how verse 3 ends. He, Paul ends the first section by saying, like the rest, we were 
by nature deserving of wrath. The actual expression used there is children of wrath. We're described as being children of wrath, carrying the idea, I think, of, of inheritance. It's what we inherit. It's our right inheritance. It's what we're due. Because of our very nature and make up as human beings, in rebellion against God, what we're due is wrath. There's wrath hanging over us. And make no mistake, God's wrath is not like human rage. Don't get the wrong idea of God's wrath. It's not like human anger or human rage that flies off the handle, that is explosive or irrational. No, as, as you've just seen from what we've read, really, this is measured. This is thought through. This is just and right and fixed. God's wrath is his settled, thought-through attitude towards sinful human beings. And it is completely just. It's totally justified. It is right anger. And that's all through the Bible. That's the message of the Bible. Make no mistake, the prophets back in the Old Testament, they actually spoke about a cup of God's wrath. A cup there that's gradually filling up as the nations rebel against him. Drip, drip, drip into the cup. The Apostle Paul spoke about God's wrath being stored up like in a reservoir stored up against you, waiting for the day of God's wrath. A fixed day that, make no mistake, is coming when justice will be satisfied and the wrath will be tipped out on the guilty, fairly and rightly. John the Baptist warned this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son, speaking of Jesus, will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. The wrath of God is a very unpopular idea today, isn't it? People like to say, you know, they say, I like to think of God as love. You know, God is, God is so loving, he can't also be angry. And God is loving. Make no mistake, that's absolutely right. But it is not the kind of hallmark card sentimental love that people like to imagine. Sentimentality doesn't really worry about sin. It just offers warm hugs. Come here, I'll give you a hug. God is not like that. That's not God's love. God's love is always constrained and compatible with his holiness and his, his purity and his justice. As Habakkuk, the prophet, said of God, this is his description of God, he said, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And by his own declaration, this is how God declares about himself, he says that though he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. And that is so foundational. Paul is reminding the believers that he is writing to about what they were, what they were, they were just like the world they came out of. Every one of them a child of wrath. And all that lay ahead of them after this life was over and done with was the wrath of God. They were dead men walking. Men on death row. And we need to take that diagnosis seriously. It is so crucial. One writer gives the illustration of a, of a doctor confronting three patients. He's come with news of a serious, life-threatening condition that they have that requires immediate surgery. The first shouts at the doctor. 
How dare you point out my problems? I came here for some encouragement and reassurance, but you've just made me feel terrible about myself. And he storms off and slams the door. The second, likewise, is furious. He says to the doctor, How, who do you think you are telling me I need treatment? I know for sure that I can go to a dozen other doctors and they will just clear me, give me a clear bill of health. I feel fine. And actually, I'm a lot healthier than others are. Think about all those smokers and alcoholics with all their problems in the next ward. Can't believe you're so arrogant. And up he gets and slams the door behind him. But the third looked at the doctor, looked him in the eye, thought for a while, and then quietly responded, well, doctor, this has all come as a terrible shock. But thank you for being truthful with me. I am so glad there's surgery available. I am so glad there is a glimpse of hope here, that there is good news. Please, will you tell me more? It can come as a terrible shock to be confronted with your sin, to actually be told how God thinks about you. It can come as a shock. We want to get angry at the person drawing attention to our failures, don't we? The person pointing that out. We want to tell them, who do you think you are judging me? Or we want to pretend that the problem's not really that bad, actually. We want to kid ourselves that this warning is really only for others, much, much worse than we are. But the wise hearer will pay attention. The wise hearer will pay, pay attention because this is so important. Because only when you know and truly accept your desperate state will you pay attention to the remedy that is offered. Only when you know how bad you really naturally are will you come to properly appreciate the grace of God in saving you. And that is true for all of us here. You want to really grasp the grace of God? You've got to grasp just how bad you really were. And that's what Paul wants to rub in next. He's reminded the readers, and he's reminded by extension you and I, what you once were, and now he wants them to know what they now are. What they now are. Read with me in verse 4. Have a look. Paul writes, But because of his great love for us, this is good news, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated him, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That is a sentence so full of hope. Try to take in the transformation that Paul's talking about here. He says God steps in. He comes to dead men and women, helpless and hopeless, captive to sin, riddled with their addictions, treating God as irrelevant or inconvenient. He comes to people like that and he says, live, live. And suddenly, life courses through our spiritual veins. Our eyes are opened. We realize our lostness. We see the wonder of God's salvation, and our hearts turn to him. Suddenly, everything this world offers to us fades. It loses its appeal. And Jesus becomes the treasure we, we long to possess. We used to sing to our children every night, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. A wonderful little children's song. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
And that is my prayer for us this morning as we look at this wonderful transformation. Suddenly the sins that we loved, we now hate. That's what happens. And we long to be rid of all that defiles us in God's sight. It's a dramatic change. It is like being born again. It is being recreated. And notice in verse 5, God does not wait to see if we will take the initiative or make an effort. Meet him halfway. He does not wait for us to try to overcome or even to want to overcome our sin. He knows that we are dead in our transgressions, but it is then, look, it is then whilst we are still sinning that he steps in and saves us. And he doesn't even stop there. It just gets better and better. Look at how Paul goes on. Having made us alive to him, having opened our eyes and quickened our spirits, he then lifts us up, he elevates us, he glorifies us so that we are seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. It doesn't get higher than that. From the morgue to the throne room of the universe. That's the story. That's a rags to riches story, isn't it? That's what beggars believe. It leaves us wondering why, why would God do that? And how, how can he do it? How is that possible? Well, Paul answers in those last three verses. Let me read them to you. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why did God do this? Why has he done that? Well, Paul lists four things. Four things that moved the all-powerful, pure and holy God to do this for us, to reach out, to reach down and save wretched sinners. Four things, really, and they're all of a, of a grouping together. The first, in verse 4, is great love. It's great love, look. Because of his great love, God's love is, is a covenanted love. It is not flighty. It is not temporary. It doesn't just blow hot and cold. It is a love that is totally committed and unfailing. And driven by that love, God committed, and Paul says this in the first chapter of Ephesians, God committed before even the foundations of the world that he would put his love on us. It's amazing. Paul's prayer for these believers and for us as he turned over to chapter 3, is that we would grasp something of the extent of that love that has been given to us. In chapter 3, he writes this. Listen, I, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that, that surpasses knowledge. You can't even understand it. Our love is fickle, isn't it? We talk about falling in and out of love. God doesn't do that. God's love never fails. God is, God's love is, is so wide and long and high and deep that it passes our even our understanding. And God saved us because of his great love, says Paul. And secondly, because he is rich in mercy. Mercy is, mercy is not getting what we justly do deserve. It is that is, 
despite being a sinner and therefore completely deserving of God's just wrath, he takes pity. God takes pity. He's often seen doing that in the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament story, Old Testament part of the Bible. Israel's a rebellious nation, constantly sinning grievously and reaping the penalty of their sins. But when that happens, they cry out to God and we're told he has compassion. He takes pity. He would be perfectly just not to intervene, wouldn't he? They're only getting the results of what they've done, but he is moved because he is rich in mercy towards those he loves. Thirdly, verse 7 says, he is kind. God is kind. Now, kind sounds like such a weak and ordinary word, doesn't it? But verse 7 demonstrates the powerful kindness of God. God's kindness is demonstrated, is demonstrated in his grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. In sending his son, that's where we see the kindness of God. Kindness is a quality that recognizes the needs in others and thinks, how can I, how can I fix that? How can I care for them? How can I supply those needs? To act in grace towards us in Jesus Christ is so kind. It's kind because it's, the, it's grace that we desperately need. And that's the final of the four, grace. Grace is what this passage is all really about, isn't it? Grace is, grace is getting what I do not deserve. In other words, a completely undeserved and unearned gift. That is what grace means. God's kindness is demonstrated by his grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. Paul's at pains to clarify this. Have a look at, at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Our desperate need was rescue. Rescue from our lost and godless natural state. We needed our eyes open to see it. And we needed a saviour to reach down and do it. And that is what God did. In chapter 1, verse 8, Paul speaks about God's grace being lavished on us. Lavished, such a wonderful word, isn't it? Poured out all over. He so loved this rebellious world, the Bible tells us, that he sent his darling son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in the place of sinners, bearing the wrath that they deserved, paying all of our debts against God, so that he could freely and graciously offer us salvation to all who put their trust in him. The cross of Christ is the source and the vindication of God's outrageous grace towards children of wrath. Everything about our salvation is grace from start to finish. Nothing, nothing whatsoever finds its source within us. According to verse 8, even the very faith, look at it, even the very faith we exercise in our Saviour, well, it's a gift of God. It's a gift given to you. We would not have done so on our own. You just wouldn't. And that is why, Paul says, insists, no one can boast about this. You cannot boast about something you had no part in achieving. Grace is at the heart 
of our fairy tale rise from rags to riches. That's what this chapter is all about. Rags to riches, rebel to royalty. Think of what you were, says Paul, and think of what you are now. Now, what impact should that have on your life from this day forth? What impact should it have? Martin Luther, who we're sort of celebrating quite a lot this year, I suppose, 500 years since he nailed stuff to a door. Martin Luther loved to describe the story of the Christian as being a fairy tale marriage, where a great king marries a harlot. That's how he describes it. There is nothing about her that ought to appeal to a king. And yet, he sees her and sets his love on her, and he woos her, and he marries her. And as they say their vows, Martin Luther just loves this. He embellishes this. She says to him, all I, have, all I am I give to you, all I have I share with you. She is wholly his. And that would be wonderful enough. But he turns to her and says, all that I am I give to you. And all that I have I share with you. So though she still carries all of the baggage of her former life, in an instant, at that moment, she is royalty. She is royalty. She co-owns the kingdom and shares all the possessions of her husband. From that day forward, she is royal. Now, the transformation of her manners and her language and her attitudes and her speech and behavior, that's going to take some time to catch up. Fair enough. She's not instantly changed like that. But she is royalty from that day forward. And because of that, she will change. She will transform. Paul ends this section in verse 10 by reminding us of that. Have a look. He says, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Because of everything he's just said about you, you've got to admit it, you're not your own handiwork, you're God's handiwork. And because you're God's handiwork, God's prepared things for you to do, and you'll just want to do them. You're going to love to do them. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for them. We've got nothing to contribute to this wonderful standing that we have before God. It is all of grace, but as his handiwork, that grace should profoundly affect our lives. It should profoundly affect us. And we're going to see a major aspect of that if you come tonight. A major aspect, because that's what the second half of this chapter really is all about. But surely this passage demands of us, just as we close, that, we, that as we revel in what God has done for us, we should yearn to give ourselves to the good works that he's prepared for us to do, shouldn't we? Shouldn't that be the response of your heart? You shouldn't just be sitting there thinking, oh, that's just lovely, I'll go home and put the dinner on. Shouldn't you be sitting there thinking, how do I respond to this grace? How, do I, how can I see this transformation in my life? And I would urge us, just as we finish now, to take a moment. Think about how you are going to respond to that lavish grace of God in saving you, in raising you from death, from the morgue, to the throne room of the universe. What things need to take place in your life and in your heart? Be specific. Just think for a moment. What will you give yourself in service to this week for the sake of Christ?